Welcome to the Mighty Littles Podcast. Hi everyone, it's Anna. Welcome back to the Mighty Littles Podcast. We are continuing this week with our mini Mighty Littles series where we are talking to parents of micro preemies. Today I talk to Andrew and Savannah. Their son Lucas was born at 22 plus 3 weeks and had not only a pretty eventful NICU stay, but also had some health complications after discharge, proving that you never know what's to come, either during the NICU stay or after. I hope that you enjoy this episode and tune in again next week for another of our tiny mighty littles. Why don't we start off by having you guys introduce yourself to our mighty littles listeners. I am Savannah Lynch, and I am Lucas's mom. It's nice to meet you both. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast today. Thank you for having us. We're pretty excited. Excellent. So why don't we start with kind of talking about your pregnancy and kind of when you knew you were going to end up with um, Lucas being in the NICU? So the pregnancy was kind of rough from the beginning with a lot of bed rest, you know, on water, and they suspected he had amniotic band syndrome. So we were sent to Ann Arbor to have another ultrasound there with their maternal fetal specialist, and it was determined that it indeed looked like amniotic band syndrome. So we knew he was going to go to NICU at that point, because the bands that they saw were coming from behind his neck and around his arm, around his left arm. Um... He also had extremely low fluid levels. They were starting to tell us, you know, when he's born, prepare for him not to breathe on his own. It was three weeks later, right after that ultrasound, and we were admitted to the hospital um, because I started having some awful abdominal pains. And they admitted us and said, you know, we're just here for observation. We don't really know what's going on. It might be an abruption, but it's really hard to tell on ultrasound. So that next morning, Sunday morning, after church, my maternal fetal specialist came to our local hospital and did an ultrasound. He looked at me in the face and he said, if you were my daughter, I would never let you leave. He said, not until this baby is born. Um, Twelve hours later, almost exactly to the minute, Lucas was born via emergency C-section. What was running through your mind at that time? Did you have a chance to talk to the NICU before you delivered? Did you know how close to the edge of viability you were? So they had a new neonatologist in our unit, and she came down and she said, you know, by your LMP, you're 23 weeks one day, but your ultrasound measures you at 22 weeks, three days. And they said, he is one pound, like one pound. And that is the smallest we, we don't even know if we'd be successful in trying. You know, we can, but we need to know what you want us to do with him. What do you want us to do? And I think that was like when it really hit us that they weren't really talking to us as if he was already a baby, that they were going to try and save no matter what. They were leaving that decision to us, what whether we decided to let him live or die. And I think that was one of the hardest parts of our whole NICU journey was deciding whether or not to try and save our son before he was even born. 
And what kind of entered into your decision about whether to go the route of do everything, so life-saving ventilators and feeding tubes and all that, versus choosing to do comfort care only, knowing that at one pound he wouldn't survive long-term? What what helped you make that decision to go one way or the other? I reached out to Facebook, um, and honestly, they're... I made a lot of amazing friends with one pound babies that were like, do your best, ask for them to save him, do everything they can, throw everything they will at him because one pound babies can survive. And a lot of times they do. And then now looking back at, you know, what we went through and where Lucas is today, I wouldn't, have, I, I wouldn't change my mind for everything we've gone through. I still would have chosen to throw everything that we could at him. Yeah, you can't imagine doing it the other way. No, not not now. So did you think it was fair for the NICU to put that on you to decide? Or do you wish they would not have put that decision on you? Ultimately, I, I still believe it's the parent's choice. That's that's their child. You know, it's it was a very he was very, very wanted. I believe it should be the parent's choice ultimately you know the a doctor that has no they don't know the family they don't know the struggles that came before that child Lucas was our fourth pregnancy but only our third child um and to, to have to decide you know just like with our previous loss do you want to abort him because that's what he would have been was a late term abortion at 22 weeks and that that should always be the parent's choice, especially the mother's choice, because a doctor can say, oh, you know, he's going to do this. And if he does live, this is what his outcome is going to be. But Lucas proved every single one of those wrong. He's not handicapped. He doesn't have brain damage. He's starting to talk. He's starting to walk. He's starting to eat on his own. You know, things that they said he would probably never do. And it wasn't even a might never do. It was probably never do because he was born so early. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that has been really helpful to me in kind of as I've matured through my career is I super strongly believe that it's my job to tell parents what all the options are, right? Um, And it's my job to let parents know what the full spectrum of possibility is But it's not my job to choose for the parents what they want for their family and their life. And the more that people, neonatologists, doctors, you know, neurologists, neurosurgeons, cardiologists are willing to try and help these babies born at one pound or less, the better success they're going to see because there's actually an opportunity. Um, We've made a lot of amazing friends on Facebook through the 22 Foundation. It's a network of other 22-weeker parents. And they just, their whole mission is advocating for the 22-weekers to be given that chance. Now, we all understand that at 22 weeks, there's a greater chance that they won't make it versus, you know, let's say a term or a healthy pregnancy. But if they're not given that same chance to survive and to live and thrive, how are we ever going to know if they really can or can't? 
uh, one of the quotes that I think sums it up really perfectly is all 22 weakers uh, or no 22 weakers will survive if we don't resuscitate. Um, and and so if if you don't resuscitate, no, 22 weakers aren't going to survive. But if you do decide to do full medical intervention, um, some of them might. And again, that very much is parental decision making. Exactly. It really looks like you guys had two journeys. The first journey was your journey through the NICU um, of having a tiny 22, 23-week, one-pound baby and all of the NICU stay that that encompasses. And the second part of your journey really seems to be after you went home because it didn't just stop when you came home. So I kind of wanted to ask you about both of those pieces separately. Could you kind of summarize his hospital stay in the NICU? So Lucas's NICU journey started October 28th at 1146 in the evening and went through March 19th, 2019 at approximately three in the afternoon. Um, it started, I wasn't able to see him for the first 19 hours. I had been on magnesium prior and then I had an emergency C-section with some minor complications afterwards. And then after my complications subsided, we still weren't allowed to see Lucas because of his complications. Um, it was a lot of resuscitating him in at the time and they weren't sure Um so those, those first 12, 24 hours were really rocky. And then we got up to see him and we got to talk to him and he, he almost instantly started to improve. It was like he knew his parents were finally there to see him. Um, he fought through his PDA ligation. He was one pound, three ounces. Um, he has an incision on his left side under his arm. He then... Um, almost didn't make it after that surgery that day they called us. we had just left and that night they called us back as soon as I walked through the door and the head neonatologist said you need to come back there's nothing else we can do for him it's time for you to hold him <laughs> sorry you're totally fine his his dad and I dropped everything and sent the kids to a babysitter and went and saw Lucas. It took about eight people to get him on my chest. Um, when they did, he was purple. He was on 100% oxygen on an oscillating ventilator. He was not doing well. Um, about a half hour into kangaroo care with him, they were able to turn his oxygen down. He started moving, his heart rate started going back up, and he just continued to get better the longer I held him. We held him for about three hours, and he continued to get stronger every day from there. And I think that's a true testament to the power of kangaroo care, especially for these little tiny ones. Yeah, kangaroo care is absolutely amazing. There's lots of studies that show that kids gain weight better and have um, 
less apnea and bradycardia and they have less heart rate drops and um, it's just they gain they gain weight faster. Everything just goes better when we're able to get babies in their mom's and dad's arms um, for kangaroo care sooner rather than later. Yeah, that was November 18th, the first time I got to hold him. And his dad didn't get to hold him for the first time until December 4th. Um, I only had gotten to hold him one other time after that because he was still extremely fragile, um, still extremely responsive to touch and not necessarily always in a good way. Um, But once he hit December, he started just turning that corner that they talk about. You know, one day the light bulb's going to go off and he's just going to start going uphill. And he did. So then it was kangaroo care every other day, every other couple days, whenever she would tolerate it. And once we were able to to do that, by the end of December, he was extubated. Fantastic. How did that feel yeah. the, on the day that he got to get extubated? Um, it was kind of scary because it was his third attempt at third attempt at extubation. Um, and we weren't sure what to expect. They went from extubations or from being intubated to NIV, so non-invasive ventilation. And that started causing a lot of problems because it was too much air going into his belly. They tried the um, tube into his stomach to try and drain air, and it just wasn't working. So then he was moved to a high-flow CPAP combination, which worked really well for him. And he stayed on that for another two months before he went to just high-flow. And I think when you're trying to get kids extubated, get that breathing tube out. It is a huge hurdle for uh, some of these smaller babies to really successfully keep that breathing tube out. And it's such a win and a victory from a parent perspective, because now you can see that your baby is doing all of the breathing on their own. They just need a little bit of extra support, but they're actually doing the breathing on their own. It, It was a really big thing for us because that meant now he had a lot more opportunity to be held. Absolutely. The policy was it had to be an RT and a neonatologist had to be on and you could only hold them during that during daytime hours while everyone they had a full staff. And once he came off the ventilator, we could hold him day or night. We could hold him for longer periods of time. We didn't have to worry about taping everything and not moving, you know. And I think that was really when we I started to feel like a parent to him when I could change his diaper without you know a respiratory therapist there making sure the breathing tube didn't move and getting him out of his isolate for the first time on my own it was such a high feeling you know that's that's the first time you're able to do anything and it was it was like three and a half months mm-hmm. three months before we were able to do that on our own for the first time that was that was pretty great. Yeah, that's pretty cool. It's kind of like here's the normalcy of motherhood. I, I can yeah. I can pick up my baby on my own and I can change his diaper on my own and I can sit down with him and hold him on my own. Yeah, and him being our third child, it was hard not to be able to just pick him up, you know, and be mom instantly. You know, that was kind of an internal struggle I had. You know, Yes, I birthed him, but I'm not his mom yet. And that was a conversation that I had with his primary nurses that was really hard for me to get through. And I don't think anyone really understands that until they've lived that part. Right. So what it's, what helped you feel 
more motherly? Was it just the time and getting to where you could do more things? Or were there certain pieces where you really could see pieces of that motherly, right? Like it wasn't, you weren't totally feeling like the mom, but you could see pieces of that mothering through those early days? Um, I think in the beginning it was hard to feel like his mom because I, I couldn't make any decision after saying, you know, yes, please do what you can. Um, we, we were kind of helpless. You know, we, we'd never been on this journey. We didn't know what path he was going to take. He is the youngest surviving baby from our hospital. So even they were kind of like, it's a shot in the dark, kind of catch 22, pun intended. Right. You know? They didn't really know and neither did we. So it really wasn't until I was able to do his cares by myself that I felt like a mom. You know, that was the first sense of normalcy with him. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I could see how that would be just really hard in the beginning to not be able to do those things and wonder what is my role? What is my purpose? Where where do I, the mom, fit into this, you know, kind of alternate universe that we've now landed in? Yeah. Yeah. So um, after December, and he really kind of turned the corner and he got extubated and he was weaning on his oxygen support and learning to eat, were things pretty smooth sailing once you hit that part of the hospital stay? Um, it was until middle of January. He's diagnosed with ROP pre-plus disease, stage three and four. So he was transferred from our local hospital to um, one about an hour and a half from our house for laser eye surgery. And they were like, oh, you know, most babies do really well. He was approximately 33 weeks gestation at the time. Like, we don't see any problems. You know, we don't foresee any complications with it. It's a pretty standard procedure. Um he went down there on a high-flow CPAP combination, and he came out of surgery intubated and stayed intubated for another five days. Um, he was almost in a coma. He would not wake up. He barely fluttered his eyes for those five days, and it was terrifying. You know, we began having the conversation of, what if he doesn't wake up? And it wasn't anything that anybody had really foreseen because he was doing so well you know he started he got to start wearing clothes and he got to start you know opening his top on his isolette for a few minutes here and there and it just it was such a shock to see him so sick again did it kind of put you back it to the beginning of the hospital stay where all of the fear and the anxiety and the we don't know if he's going to survive and I can't really just be his mom did kind of all of that bubble back up it did it really did because I mean nobody was sure of anything you know here he left this healthy uh, almost healthy kid you know at on CPAP and high flow and he came back on some pretty extreme ventilator settings thankfully after about 20 24 hours at home he finally woke up and was extubated. They they don't know if he just needed to be home again, if he needed his nurses, you know, if he just needed to be out of that environment he was in. But it it was like a miracle because he just woke up and ripped his tube out one day. It's it's interesting that he had that reaction. Every now and then we will have a preterm baby who goes for either ROP surgery or um, 
an inguinal hernia repair. And most babies go and come back and the breathing tube comes out in 12 to 24 hours and they're back on their feeds and it really isn't a setback. But every now and again, we will have a baby that just, there's some reaction to the anesthesia that makes them just totally lazy and they're content to have the ventilator do all of the work they don't move they just they're like oh yeah you put the breathing tube in i am happy to let you do all the breathing and it does it can take three to five days for these kind of i I hate to use the word lazy because it sounds bad but that that really is the description of them right like they're just they're not um They're not sick, so they're not lethargic, right? That's something that we, that's a term that we use more for a baby that has an infection. They look lethargic, look lethargic. But these babies are just a little bit lazy and it takes them longer to recover from that surgery. And I don't know if it's a a way that their body is processing the anesthesia. Is it something about their genetics that makes them um, more sensitive to the anesthesia? Are there some babies that are getting a little bit more anesthesia because they're harder to get ready for surgery and then it just lingers for longer. There's a lot of unknowns around it, but we definitely see every now and then these babies come back from surgery who just take a little bit longer. And for me, I've seen it before, so I can be reassuring to parents, hey, I've, I've seen these babies sometimes be a little bit lazy. Let's hang in there. Let's not start to panic. Let's, let's just give it a couple of days. But Every time it happens, you can see it in the parents' eyes. They're just panicking. Oh my gosh, my baby might not wake up. It it just it just feels like almost PTSD from the beginning of the hospital stay. Yeah. Just this panic that comes up. It, it 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 and that's exactly how it was. It was so hard, you know. And and some of the seasoned nurses that had been there a long time were like, you know, it it does happen. It it's going to be okay in the end. But then when we got to like, you know, day four, day five, even they were like, you know, it's it's still he's he's still going to be OK. But you could start to see the concern and the worry on their face. And that's, I think, really when his dad and I started to get really emotional and upset about it was, you know, when his primary nurses are getting concerned. And the neonatologist comes in and says, you know, we don't really know what's going to happen after, you know, after this point. You know, we're, we're just waiting and watching and letting him tell us what he needs right now. And, and that's, that was... I was going to say, awful. that's a lot of the NICU stay, right, is is waiting and watching and listening to the babies to tell us yep. what they need. Which is why it's so hard to make predictions about anything in the NICU because yeah. we are simply waiting to respond to what the baby tells us they need. Yep. Um, so after that whole whole roller coaster loops to loop in January, he continued to do really well. Um, after his extubation there, he moved from CPAP to high flow. Uh, let's see. He moved to high flow about six days later, totally off CPAP. So that was a huge hurdle that we've been waiting to get over. Um, and then less than a month later, he had his first bottle that, that was huge for us. That was something that kept getting pushed back because he had gotten sick again, right before his first bottle it was supposed to be at about a week before he actually had it. Um, and he just, I was holding him and he started breathing really hard. And I, I called his nurse. I said, you know, something's wrong. Something's, 
something's not right. And so we took his pajamas off and laid him down. And he, at the time, was in a crib. They put him back in the isolate because his body temperature was low. They put him back on, you know, at extreme high flow, back on CPAP. And they found he had pulmonary hypertension. And that's what was causing all of this. So once he was back on a little more support, he settled right down. And by the end of the night, he was back to normal. So we just stayed on a higher support level for a little while. And then finally, slowly, teeny tiny baby steps, weaned down that support until he was stable to take his first bottle. And that was a huge triumph for everybody. The OT that fed him, his nurses, his dad and I, the whole family. It was like that. That is our first foot in the door to going home. Right. Like that. That was when we started to really see the finish line was when he started to take his bottles. How long did it take him to learn how to eat from the time that he had that first bottle? Um, it was a very slow process. So that was just, that was February 19th. Um, it took him about three weeks to really get the hang of it. And even then he left NICU at the bare minimum. It, it was a fight to get him to finish his bottles at the end of the hospital stay, you were kind of working on feeds and you kind of just sneaked out of the NICU taking the bare minimum. Why don't we transition over since you've kind of nicely brought up things that you found after he went home? Why don't we transition over to tell me about what it was like to bring him home and how things went once you got home? Bringing him home in one word was terrifying. He was on oxygen, he was on a monitor. Um, he was on medications. He was on um, Lasix and di- or Diarrhea, one of the two. I yeah. believe it was Diarrhea when he came home. Um, and it was like the super strict feeding schedule. He had to eat this much at exactly this time every two and a half hours. And it was terrifying because we also had two toddlers at home, one of which had just had a G-tube placed two days before Lucas came home due to his laryngomalacia. So we were battling a brand new feeding tube on an 18 month old and bringing home Lucas on oxygen with a three and a half year old and an 18 month old. So excited about their brother that we couldn't even do anything. You know, all they wanted was baby brother that they'd heard about for months and seen pictures of, but they never gotten to meet him. So it was, it was terrifying, but it was also like this exhilarating experience because now our, our family is together. It was complete. So when did you start to notice that he was having more trouble with his airway, with the laryngomalacia, the bronchiomalacia, the tracheomalacia, and his feeding? And talk me through kind of the decisions that you guys made along this, the, that route. So when we left NICU, um, like he was doing the bare minimum, so I started tracking his, his feeds. And we got like a goal that he was supposed to take in milliliters every day. And I started tracking his percentages each day. And I'd noticed they went from 85 to 70%. They were going as low as 20 to 15% in a day for his total volume fed. And we reached out to NICU. They told us, you know, either take him to the emergency room or you can bring him here and we'll have our OT look at him. So, of course, the same OT that fed him the whole time was in NICU. He took a great bottle that time. It was absolutely perfect. And I'm like, well, great. Now, you know, now I look like the liar here. And then I brought in the papers and I'm like, this is what's happening. And it got to the point where he wouldn't wake up for his feeds at night. 
he got home and he just wanted to sleep. Um, so we reached out to a GI that our other son see it, saw. And he said, okay, you know, we'll bring him in and take a look. Well, that was a whole nother monster there, a whole nother fight to get them to listen to me and, you know, really, really, really listen, I guess is the best way to say it. When I was telling him, you know, he's having trouble eating. He's not gaining the weight that they want. We're doing everything you want us to do. He's our 30 calorie Neosure. You know, I need help with him. I need help. And so he was directly admitted from that GI to have an NG tube placed where they then did a swallow study and it was determined he was aspirating on all consistencies. So when they put the NG in, you went home with the NG tube, right? Yeah. So how long did he stay with the NG tube before uh, moving to a G tube? So Lucas came home from NICU with no NG in the middle of March. The middle of April, he was admitted to Mott's Children's Hospital, about 200 miles from our house. And the NG was placed there. We stayed inpatient three days, um, learning, making sure he was doing okay with it, tolerating his feeds. We came home and he did not have a G-tube placed until January of 2020. Oh, so you had a G- or had the NG-tube in for like seven months. It was a very long time. It was a lot of, um, a lot of it was Lucas was battling a lot of different things that no one could really put together. So every time we'd schedule a surgery, it'd get pushed off because of a cardiac issue or a neuro- neurological issue. Um, and then his birthday hit and they're like, all right, we're ready. And we said, you know what, do it. And they did the scope and a lung wash and he did not recover from the lung wash. Well, he came back from OR on one liter of oxygen and three hours later, he was on 11 liters of high flow oxygen. So they're like, you know, we can't do the surgery right now. It's just too risky to let his lungs heal. Like, all right, fine. You know, it's, it's his best interest. But it needs to get done because at this point, he had totally stopped taking anything by mouth. He stopped accepting a pacifier. You couldn't approach his face to give him kisses or hugs or anything because he was so traumatized by the months and months of replacing that NG tube. So I have a lot of families. Um, I think this is one of the biggest questions that we get towards the end of a hospital stay for our smaller babies or even our term babies who have aspiration and just won't eat. Why can't I go home with an NG? And so you now have the experience of having done the NG tube at home and having moved and done the G tube now for two of your kids. When you look at the benefits and the risks of the NG and the G-tube, how do you think about them now? The NG is good for short term. It got us to a point where he was steady gaining weight. It got us to a point where we could meet with another GI and another specialist and really review his chart, get his swallow study done, you know, get every, get all the little pieces in together. But it isn't anything I would ever go back and redo long term I'd say nothing more than maybe a month or two and I I tell all my friends that that have feeding difficulties you know when they're tidy and and they're in NICU and they're totally dependent on the tube they're not you know as active you know they're not trying to eat on their own that that's okay they they don't they're not really going to know a difference but 
once they have the experience without that tube and eating without it to put it back in and then ask them, Hey, now do the same thing but with this tube in your throat. It just isn't, it's not very nice. <laughs> you know, right. we all understand it's in their best interest, but it, it stopped Lucas totally from all oral eating. I mean, everything. He is finally now just starting to put food in his mouth on his own. We still cannot approach his face with a spoon, so he's never been spoon-fed or fed purees. Um, and for the longest time, even his speech therapist couldn't approach him with anything. He'd scream and turn his face away and hold his breath. And it it breaks your heart, you know, to see your kid who you love so much and you know you only did what was best for them. But in the end, it it really traumatized and ended up hurting them more than it did good. Right. Do you wish that you had been able to put the G-tube in sooner? Every single day. Yeah. Every single day we wish it would have worked out to have the G-tube done sooner. Right. And, I mean, that's one of those things. I call it the shoulda, coulda, wouldas. Um, yeah. And I always say the shoulda, coulda, wouldas will kill you and really mess with your mind because – all you can do is make the best decision for your baby on the day that you're making that particular decision. And, exactly. you know, six months later, yeah, gosh, I wish I would have put the G-tube in. But the day you had to choose, you couldn't put the G-tube in, right? Like you had to deal with the respiratory stuff first. You have to deal with the neuro stuff first. Um, so you can, I mean, you can go back and wish it would have happened, but it does still doesn't mean that you made a bad decision at the time you made the best decision at the time with what you were working with um but yeah I mean it's that's an interesting I haven't had a family have experience with both NG and G-tube at home for such a prolonged amount of time so I was just curious what your what your thoughts were on it yeah and now that we have two toddlers with a G-tube um our oldest is an amazing helper she loves to help do button changes because we do routine button changes on both boys. Um, the I can tell you the first time we had to change the older, our older son Maddox's button. She freaks out. Um, Maddox had been playing around. And he did a flip over the bed. And he stood up and goes, here, daddy. And he had it in his G2 balloon and all. And we're like, okay. So that was a pretty quick reaction there and I think that's what it ended up stressing her out but now she's amazing she holds their hands or talks to them um and just it's great having a helper that isn't afraid of all of the medical things that her brothers have dealt with right you know from the time she was three to now she's almost five has been around feeding tubes and oxygen and you know her we test Lucas's blood sugar so regular needle pokes and all kinds of stuff so yeah. Oh, that's cool. So you mentioned yeah. um, in this process of, of moving towards the G-tube that you had some heart challenges and some neuro challenges. Why don't you tell me about those two things? So after we had the NG place, Lucas started doing really well. He started gaining weight really well. Um, and then he we tried a room air trial for him to see if we could wean his oxygen or take him off. And he failed. It was an absolute failure, and it was devastating. But that, it was kind of like, okay, you know. And then he started having some awful bradycardia at night. 
it just his heart rate would drop to the 40s and it really freaked his dad out because it wasn't anything he was doing in NICU and it wasn't anything he'd done for the three months prior you know at home so he got a hold of his cardiologist in Ann Arbor and they brought him in and they did an EKG and an echo and that's when we found out not only did he have an atrial septum defect that they found in NICU right before he came home but he also had a pulmonary collateral vessel and a PFO. Um, so they said that all kind of can relate to it, but we're not really sure. So we're just going to keep an eye on it. And they're like, if it happens again, bring him back. So we did. He, he had been admitted for like eight days. They ran a bunch of tests and they're like, you know, we really don't know. Just kind of keep an eye on it. It might just be nothing. I'm like, okay. So we got home and they're like, if it happens again, call an ambulance. This isn't anything to play with. Not not even 12 hours after we got home, he was asleep and his heart rate dropped to the low 40s and stayed. And he wasn't just, his heart rate would drop and he'd come back up. It was, it dropped and he was unresponsive. We couldn't wake him up. We couldn't do anything to get him to come back to us. So we called an ambulance and we spent the entire month of August in Ann Arbor going through a six-day EEG and echoes and EKGs and meeting with cardiologists and neurologists and neurosurgery. Um, we met with hemonc and genetics, GI, respiratory, you know, anybody that they could think of, they threw at us trying to figure out what was going on. And that was probably one of our most frustrating hospital stays because one specialist said, this isn't my problem. This is theirs. And they would come back and say, that's not my problem. This is person C's problem. And person C said, no, this is person A's problem. Yeah, you couldn't find anybody to take responsibility for it and try to advocate with you. Yeah. It was very frustrating. And they're like, okay, well, you know, we're not really finding anything. Are you ready to go home? And at that point, I had to put my foot down and say, no, I cannot take him home. What if next time this happens and he doesn't wake up? And nobody can help me figure out what's wrong or you know no one wants to work together to figure this out and that was when they really all kind of said okay they all took a step back and they started talking and figuring it out they ended up stopping one of the medications he was on thinking that might be what it was because he had a medication sensitivity when he was in NICU and he still has bradycardia but not to that extent. He still drops to the low 50s, but now if he gets there, we are able to wake him up. Um, so in the end, we really didn't find anything after a month-long hospital stay. So through the NICU stay and through all these hospital stays after he's come home, what have you kind of figured out in terms of advocating for Lucas? Like, what has worked really, really well? And what things did you try that really didn't work or backfired that people who are kind of starting this process and trying to figure out how to navigate the healthcare system and, and advocate for their littles? Um, what have you learned about kind of navigating that system and advocating for your child? So the first thing, the first piece of advice I'd give anybody is don't go in as a know-it-all, but go in with knowledge. You have to know what you're talking about. Know what you want to find out, you know, research and don't just jump on Google. For the love of God, do not go to Dr. Google. 
do some credible research into maybe what your child is experiencing, what medication they're talking about using, what procedure they want to do. Go in with knowledge, but absolutely do not be a know-it-all because they won't listen to you. If you are rude or, you know, just like try and tell them what to do, they're not going to want to do it. They're not going to listen because at the end of the day, it is their, it's their patient. You know, it's, it's their choice and it's, it's their job to do what's in their best interest, not what the parents necessarily always want. Um, that being said, though, there's times you do have to put your foot down and tell the doctors what needs to happen as well. If they're doing something that you, as a parent, you're more in touch with your child than the doctor is because it's just a patient. Um, and there's several times that we felt that we knew something wrong was wrong with Lucas and the doctor saying, no, he's standing fine. No, this is fine. No, that is fine. And we put our foot down and said, no, you need to take a deeper look. You need to stop doing this and look more towards this way. And they did that and they realized, oh, well, I guess this was wrong and uh, we can start changing this around here in a little bit. No, I think that's a really good point. I always tell parents in the NICU, you know, when I round, I see babies for anywhere from five minutes to 10 hours, depending on how sick they are, right? When they're really sick, I'm in the room a lot. And when they're feeding and growing and healthy, I'm not in the room very often. I come in, I do an exam, I touch base, but they're doing okay. So as the parents, you guys are with your child way more, especially after they go home. And so you're going to notice things that are different or off that I wouldn't notice. And that that parental input is essential for the doctors being able to get on the right track and figure out what's going on. So yes, you do have to really put your foot down and say, hey, I need you to listen to these things. I know my child. I had, when Lucas was in NICU, I had a neonatologist literally laugh in my face when I told him something, the medication they were giving him is what was causing the problem. And he said, well, how do you know? I said, mother's intuition. And he literally laughed in my face and walked out of the room. That was not only heartbreaking, but it was very belittling. Because you're a neonatologist. Yes, and I understand you have tons of schooling. But at the same time, this is my child. I'm the one connecting him with him and carried him. And, you know, and and here day and night with him. And you're here 10 minutes. You know, you get a phone call and you answer a question about him. It was extremely belittling for him to hold like that power over me almost is how it felt because he was the doctor and I was just his mom, just his mom. Um, And so, you know, that medication that they were giving him, I told him to stop. This is what this is. I'm telling you is what's causing the problem. I went to the FDA's website. I went to the drug makers formulary. And I was looking at it and looked over it for hours and hours and hours and spoke to the nurses that were taking care of Lucas. And they're like, you know, well, we've never seen anything like this before. We've never seen a kid do this. And I'm like, but that doesn't mean it can't happen. You've also never seen Lucas. You've never seen a person like Lucas. And come to find out after they adjusted the ET tube and did everything else trying to avoid saying it was the medication, they stopped the medication and everything else stopped. Yeah. Everything just went back to normal. And I that had to be the most belittling moment in NICU was when I was laughed at for being his mom. 
I am just incredibly sorry that you had that experience. I really think that neonatologists and parents need to be on a team. Like, I cannot take care of your baby without your input. I mean, I can, but I don't think I take as good a care of your baby without your input. Um, And there are situations where, you know, kids aren't behaving the way they think we we think that they should be behaving or things are just a little bit odd or we're having weird reactions. And I do have parents say to me sometimes, well, gosh, I'm really worried about this. And then I can come back and say, well, I appreciate your concern. And these are all the reasons why I'm not worried about that. Um, and, And do some education. And then the parents can come back and say, oh, okay, great. Now I feel more comfortable. Or okay, great. I see where you're coming from. I'm still really worried about it. Is there a way that we can compromise and I can become even more comfortable? And I and I feel like that partnership between the physician and the parents, if it, when you can get a good partnership, always leads to better outcomes for the baby. Yeah. Like we stated, it's it's got to be a doctor and a parent thing. You know, the doctor has the medical knowledge, but the parent knows that kid. You know, that's that's literally a piece of them. And whether or not, you know, they're born at 22 weeks or they're born at 40 weeks, that parent is always going to have more of a connection than the doctor ever will or a nurse, regardless of how much time they spend with them. What do you wish you knew before this whole NICU experience started? That's a hard question because our our middle child, Maddox, was also a NICU baby. He was born at 32 weeks and six days, um, and he was just a feeder grower. He, you know, didn't have any respiratory issues, had a feeding tube for like six days. That was it. So we had a, a small idea of what NICU was, you know, scrub in, do the three minutes, you know, Keep your cell phones on silent, no phone calls, you know, no videos, all that, all the rules and stuff. But the difference between Maddox, who we could immediately hold and see and cuddle and change and clothe, and Lucas was astronomical. There's, it's hard to compare the two. And what I wish I had known before going in with Maddox was that in the end, it's going to be okay. With Lucas, I wish I'd known that I was stronger than I thought I ever was. You know, they always say, oh, the NICU's a roller coaster. That doesn't even begin to describe it. The NICU is a roller coaster of ups and downs, and it's going to send you backwards and flip you upside down and spiral you down into a deep, it's going to look like a hole. And you think you're never going to get out of it. And one day, you're just going to see the light. It's like they said, that switch is going to turn on and it's it's going to be okay. You are stronger and you will get through it. Is there anything you wish you didn't know before you went in? Like, I guess what I'm thinking is, oh, the neonatologist said, hey, it's 22 weeks, you're 22 and change or 23 and he's really small. Oh. You you know, we're on that edge of viability. Do you wish you hadn't have known that? Our neonatologists didn't tell us they were on the edge of viability. Okay. They 
she I should say she she just said he's not that big and we knew beforehand the youngest baby that they had attempted to save prior was 22 weeks and five days and that had been our goal like every single day we knew we knew we were pushing it once we got that diagnosis from our maternal field specialist we knew every day was going to matter for him and when he was born at 22 and 3 it literally shattered our world I don't think there's anything I wish I didn't know. Yeah. Because I believe knowledge is power. Do you think that your NICU experience has changed who you are as a parent? I think it definitely has. I mean, I I don't know anybody that could go through such a traumatic experience like that and not come out on the other side changed in some way. Um, It's kind of taught us to live really each day like it might be your last because you don't know what the next day is going to bring don't take the little things for granted like being able to touch your child for the first time or hold them or bathe them lucas was four months old the first time he got a bath you know he got wiped down with a washcloth but he was four months old before he got a real bath you know and i think new parents should really take that and and hold on to it don't ever take the little things for granted yeah. because then you might not be able to do them. I think that's great advice. What else do you want to share with our listeners before we wrap up our call today, either Savannah or Andrew? Don't be afraid to be your child's voice. They can't advocate for themselves, especially not when they're in NICU. Um, educate yourself, but don't don't try to overpower the doctor mm-hmm. you know huh? the only other thing that I would say too is it's going to be an extremely stressful time um, while you're doing this no matter if it's just a, a, a grower and a feeder you know like 32 weeker and you're done or if it's in Lucas's you know stage of 23 weeks 22 weeks you know anything like that it's an extremely stressful time no matter what you do nothing's going to prepare you for it so you also have to take care of yourself. You can't you can't expect yourself to be there a hundred percent of the time, staying up a hundred percent of the time, staying up for forty eight hours straight trying to, you know, watch over your baby. That's why the nurses and doctors are there. They will take care of them. They you need to be able to go somewhere and you need to be able to try to relax as much as you can as well. Take some time out for yourself. You need to have a support system for you. So if you have other children, see who can watch your other children while you're there. Um, so that way you and your other um, can be, even go out, you know, it, it, and you may not even want to, but it's going to be something that's going to be mentally healthy for you to do, to take a break and go out, spend some time with each other. Because it's just like Savannah said earlier, it's the little things that count, not only in the baby, but just in the family as you're going through this time. Right. Because you need to make sure your family is okay, too. Right. I've actually written a prescri- on a prescription pad, like, dad, take mom out to dinner, or mom, take dad to the movies, or go home and play video games for 30 minutes. Um, like, you must go on a date. You have to do something. Um, and when kids are sick, I don't, I don't do that, right? Like, I only do it when the kids are healthy and I'm confident that things will be okay. Um, But even when I have kids that are really sick and and the parents are just 
so stressed at the bedside, even just walking downstairs to get a cup of coffee can be a mental break for that 15 minutes. And you can come back a little bit more invigorated, a little bit more refreshed, a little bit more able to handle all of the chaos that's happening around you. So I think that's fantastic advice. Also, you know, having the other parents that are there to, you know, talk to them, uh, you know, sit down and, you know, even become friends with them, you know, if you can, because not only does it help you, it helps them. It gives you something to talk about. You can talk about things that, you know, a stress relief, you know, say what's going on with your child and the other parent will have an understanding, a, a basic understanding of what's going on. Um, and that helped us out a lot too, uh, being able to talk to other parents out there and then they can say, hey, this is what happened with my child. And he, you know, my child just went through this, you know, three weeks ago, maybe look into this direction too. And then so that way that can bring you into another enlightenment of, hey, we should look at this. Right. Yeah. I believe we made a couple friends in NICU and some of them we still talk to today, you know, almost two years later. And it was really important at the time because you can't be on your phone. You know, you're not supposed to, you're supposed to be totally in with your baby. But when your baby is intubated and can't move or talk to you and you can't really interact with them because they're sleeping all the time, having those other parents there to talk to is really important. And I know it's difficult because we don't, before Lucas's journey, we didn't share a whole lot. We were pretty private people, you know, but then Lucas came along and he became this opportunity to not only connect with other people, but to educate others. And I know that might sound bad to some people, but like I said, if you never take that opportunity to educate, no one's ever going to give them that chance. The other thing that we ran into as well is before we even come home, um, you know, we were spending a lot of money on gas back and forth. I was still working full time. Um, you know, it was it was really hard, and it's you cannot be afraid to ask for help. I mean, we're, we're people that we don't really want to ask for help. We'll we'll get this. We'll take care of the situation no matter what it is. Um, but in times like this, I mean, you're back and forth, you know, between counties, so many different times, and so many doctors' appointments, and you still have all your family stuff going on um, at home that you still have to run and take care of and go to work. And don't be afraid to ask for help from people. Um, with everything going on with Lucas, uh, people I worked with, they were they were awesome. Um, I some of the stops that I delivered to, they even got toys for the kids for Christmas. Um, they knew that we were going to have a short Christmas because of everything going on, and they pitched in, and we, I don't know how many toys we had for the kids. It was, it was great. Yeah, everyone coming together as a community to support you. Yeah, so yeah. my my son was admitted um, in March with COVID actually, um, and was I mean if you've seen my blog you've yeah. you, you know about it, um, and was super sick and his families from the school brought meals to my house and dropped them off for a month and that yeah. made all the difference in the world because I could just focus on what I needed to do and not have to be worried about my husband and my girls who are at home and how are they going to eat. And I mean, yeah. the, I think that outpouring of community, you, you don't even know that it's there. And then when it shows up, it's like this huge relief. It just kind of helps propel you forward to get through what you're getting through. Yeah. Don't, don't be afraid to ask for help and don't be ashamed to take it if someone offers and I think that was one of our one of our personal biggest struggles for Andrew and I was that 
we don't ask for help and we don't take it. You know, we're usually the ones that give it. And um, to be on the receiving end of it was eye-opening because it's like your community does care. They really do, you know, and, and you'll see your family, just how much they're willing to come together at a time. Your support system is the greatest thing that's probably going to help you get through the NICU journey and after. And it not only does it help your stress level go down when you're doing this, but if you're stressed, your baby's going to know that you're stressed. You know, a lot of times that when we were having a bad day, Lucas would know we would have a bad day and he would in turn have a bad day. You know, his stats would go crazy. Um, so you really have to take care of yourself if you really want to take care of your child. So that way, not only are you there, but you keep your child calm because it's a stressful time for your child as well, whether they're awake to know it uh, or you, you, anything their body will know if you're stressed. Yeah, I, th- I think that's true. Um, kids really do pick up on their parents' emotions. And so if you're stressed and anxious, your kids are going to be stressed and anxious. If you're upset and overwhelmed, your kids become more stressed and overwhelmed. And so trying to stay calm in the chaos can help your kids stay calm and help them just focus on healing. Well, you guys, I just so appreciate you being willing to come on and share your story and it was just lovely to talk to you and I think you guys are doing such an awesome job thank you you keep saying it Walt no podcast